You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. The theme for this year, for 2024, is ready for the Lord's return. And we understand that things are going on in the world today that are very uh, disturbing, very alarming. Uh, In fact, a lot of people get um, upset or nervous about what's happening in the world. So I bring us back to what Jesus said to his disciples, what Jesus said to those who were following him because they wanted to know, he said, what are going to be the signs of your coming? How will you know that your return is imminent? And so there's different parables that Jesus used. They're mostly found in Matthew 24 and 25, and they all have to do with a theme of readiness. And so we're going to be kind of talking through the idea of readiness throughout these next few weeks, but so far we've talked about being ready to pray. I know that it's important that we learn to pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean you just don't do anything but pray, but rather it means that you are ready to pray whenever the situation calls for it, and pretty much that's any time and always, isn't it? Being ready to pray. The second part is ready to follow. It's one thing to be a Christian, but the word Christian means follower of Jesus, And if you're going to follow Jesus, you should probably know what his word says. So when he says it, it's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. It's something that we're supposed to do. And so on Thursdays, we've been kind of studying a little bit the commands of Jesus. It's been a wonderful time as we've kind of gotten together in a small group format to be able to study his word. Last week, we talked about being ready to give, and it's not about money. It's about giving of yourself and that the talents, the gifts, the abilities, the resources God has given you, he has given you to steward for his purposes so that you wouldn't just use it for yourself, but he gave it to you for a reason, to be used for his glory. This week we're looking at being ready to serve. Ready to serve. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. How many know that his word is life and light to us? It illuminates the pathway. It illuminates the dark parts of our life that maybe we haven't given any attention to. We all have parts in our houses where we have where places where the lamps are and the places where the lamps aren't. And if you're trying to read or do something or crochet, you know you sit where the light is because where the light is, you can see what you're doing. It's in the dark parts of the room that maybe you kind of want to take a nap or fall asleep or drift off uh, into dreamland as you watch the football game this afternoon. But it's in the places where the light is that you are focused, you can see clearly, and you can see what you're doing. So God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Let's take a look at this parable that Jesus shared in Matthew 25. Remember, this is something that When the disciples asked, what will be the signs of your coming? He replied in this parable. He said in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, underline that because that's important for our understanding of this passage, okay? 
says, who said to them on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? It says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink and I was a stranger and you took me in and I was naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? They didn't see that. It's like, I don't recall ever doing that for you personally. Verse 4 says, and the king will answer and say to them, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it for one of the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and we did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it, you did not do it. To the least of these, you did not do it unto me. And these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word and your spirit. We thank you that you speak to hearts and minds and draw us closer to you. May we hear the heart of the Father. May we sense the leading of the Spirit, and may we be drawing people closer to your son. Help us to understand these words today and to be guided by them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you may have heard this verse and passage preached on before, and in a casual reading, if you're reading through this, one might think this parable means that a salvation is achieved only through good works. But that's not what the passage is saying. In fact, a work's salvation goes against what the Scripture teaches. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and Galatians 3, 6, and 9 tell us that salvation is by grace, through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. In other words, if you could take credit for your own salvation, then you might be able to put some stock in the works that you do. In fact, if it was about works. You could do enough works and quantify it that somehow God would take notice of it and he would be greatly pleased with you. But that takes into consideration the idea of a scale and balances, that if I do enough good works, it'll offset the bad works and God will be pleased with me. But you have to understand, when we think about the good works that we do, it's probably small in comparison to the bad things we do. Am I right? Like, if you think about all the bad things you do, the things you shouldn't think about, the things you say to people that are insensitive, the times that you've maybe done the wrong thing or did something when no one was looking, if you thought about all those times, that's quite a pile of wrong things. And if you think about the occasional good thing that you do once in a while, where you occasionally go to a soup kitchen and serve, or you occasionally give to the Firefighters Association, or you occasionally volunteer at Kiwanis Club, those are small compared to the number of bad things you've done. So it's a game in which you will never outweigh the bad that you've done. So it can't possibly be based on that. 
Even James 2, where in verses 14 through 26, when it says the faith without works is dead, he is speaking of the outward evidence of the inward faith to the world. In other words, how will people see your faith if you do nothing? In other words, the faith comes first. The works are the outshoot of that faith. Now, what does the sheep and the goats represent? The clues tell us which each group represents and how they are referred to. Now, notice that he separates them before reviewing their works. Take the note of that first. He separates them into sheep and goats, sheep on the right and goats on the left. Now, you should know that the right hand is always a symbol of favor and authority in the word. It's a position of grace and favor. Jesus, when he is resurrected from the dead and returns to heaven, it says that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. You may have heard the expression that we use in our culture today, that this right here is my right-hand man. What does that mean? It means that that person is invaluable. That person is inseparable. That person uh, I trust implicitly. So to be at the right hand means that you are trustworthy, that you are faithful, you are reliable, and that you are favored by the one who is in charge. Conversely, the left hand was actually a place of rejection. The left hand was always considered to be bad. In fact, if you go into some parts of the world and you try and shake someone's hand with your left hand, you will greatly offend them because to them, the right hand, uh, the left hand, is an insult. So favors on the right hand and blessing in left hand is the side of disfavor. Let's continue a little further. Now, sheep, what are the sheep and what are the goats? Sheep are often referred to by Jesus as his followers. John 10 tells us his sheep know his voice and they will not follow another. Sheep are easily led, but they can sometimes wander off and are usually rescued by the shepherd. Jesus also calls the sheep righteous, blessed of my father, and tells them to come receive your inheritance prepared from the foundation of the world. So when he's referring to sheep, he's referring to those who know his voice, those who follow after him, and those who will not follow another. So the sheep are followers of Jesus. Now, let's talk about goats. What do we know about goats? I know nothing about goats except an ancillary sort of little bit about them, okay? There are people who raise goats and know more than me, so you are welcome to correct me after service if I am wrong about goats. But goats tend to be stubborn, willful, and refuse to be led. They are cute, like the Nubian ones who have puppy dog ears, But then there are ones that have those square pupils who frighten the daylights out of me, and I avoid petting them at the petting zoo because they have square pupils. That is strange to me. Every other creature that I'm aware of that's a mammal has round pupils, but anyway. Goats are the opposite of sheep. A shepherd can whistle or call from a distance, and sheep will respond and flock to the shepherd right away. Goats need to be penned and will only come if they offer you something. Am I right on that? Okay. Okay. So, hey, I'm on, I'm on the right path. You know, Michelle raises goats. So I'm like, is that yes? And gives me a nod. Okay. Furthermore, the symbol often associated with the devil and how he's depicted is often depicted as a what? Goat. 
Okay, so I don't need anything more than that right there to indicate that. So Jesus refers to the goats as wicked or cursed, and they will go into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So these are not good people. These are people who did not follow Christ or live for him. The preparation and the location indicates who Jesus is talking to. Heaven is a place prepared from the beginning of time for those who follow the Lord. Jesus said in John 14, 3, when he was going to leave them, he said, I am going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. So heaven is a place prepared for those who have received salvation and faithfully follow Jesus. Now let's talk about the other place. Some people don't even like to say it, right? Hell is the other place. Notice who it's prepared for. It's not prepared for mankind. It was never prepared for mankind. It is a place prepared for those who rebelled against God. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. It was not for man, but the devil and his angels. But those who fall to the devil's deception and live for themselves and deny Christ will not receive eternal life, but rather they will receive a place of eternal punishment Instead, now how do we understand this passage that Jesus is talking about? When will this occur? Remember last week, uh, this is the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry before the cross, and he's answering the question, when will be the signs of the end of the age and the signs of your soon coming? Therefore, these are things that will happen or will happen near judgment day when the Lord returns. Now, there's two interpretations about the timeline of where this will happen. Okay, one, the first one is this, that it will happen at the end of the tribulation period and the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ on earth. So we know that in end times prophecy, if you study scripture at all, it talks about a seven-year period in which uh, the the wrath of God will be poured out upon the earth. It will be a time of great persecution for the Christians. It will last approximately seven years, and then the Lord himself will come, and he will come to earth, and he will establish his kingdom forever. When he comes, he will separate those who follow him from those who don't follow him and establish a kingdom that will be around for a thousand years in which he reigns on earth. The second interpretation is that this is the white throne judgment of all mankind at the end of the millennial reign. Now, if you study the book of Revelation, you see that Christ establishes his reign on earth with those who are still living on the earth. They have not uh, died yet. They're not in heaven. They're not in the heavenly bodies. They're just living and dwelling on the earth, and they have children and grandchildren. There's several generations that take place here. It says at the end of that thousand-year reign, the devil will be released once more to deceive the nations and to lead them against God in one more attempt to try and overthrow him. After that millennial reign, it says there's a white throne judge and he separates the wicked from the righteous and judge them according to their works. For me, the first one makes more sense as author James Montgomery Boyce explains. The parable of the sheep and the goats is part of the Olivet Discourse. It's found in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It's a parable, a short, simple story of comparison. Jesus uses parables to teach spiritual truths about earthly situations. Jesus begins his parable by saying it concerns his return in glory to set up his what? His kingdom. Therefore, the setting of this event is at the beginning of the millennium. After the tribulation, all those on earth at that time will be brought before the Lord, and he will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on his left. The sheep are those who were saved during the tribulation, and the goats are the unsaved who survived the tribulation. This does make sense because when Christ does return to defeat the armies of Antichrist, there will be those who became saved during the tribulation, and there will be those who did not believe or follow him. So what happens to those who did not serve and follow Christ when he establishes his kingdom? They will not enter his kingdom, but instead they'll be condemned to darkness. And this fits the uh, way Jesus talks about other parables, whether it's the wedding banquet or whether it's the parable of the ten bridesmaids or the parable of the talents. Those who were not ready and those who did not take the reign and the rule of the master seriously, it says they were put out of the kingdom and sentenced to outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that we understand this, the question we must ask ourselves is, does that now mean we should not do good works? That's what sometimes Christians would be. Like, well, it's not about works, so I'm just going to do nothing. And that's not good either, okay? We understand it's by grace we're saved through faith, but it doesn't mean that we should do nothing. I've lived my whole life as a Christian. I've walked with God and I've been in various churches, whether being a member of a church or whether pastoring a church. And I'm always amazed and appalled at how little Christians will do for the Lord. Because you know, brother, it's not about works. We're not on the law. We're under grace. And it's almost like we're trying to treat it like it's a free pass to do nothing. As though Christ wants us to sit around until he comes back and do nothing. That's not how it should be. Works of service are the marks of a Christian life. Christians in the first century Roman Empire were known for their compassion. They truly cared for one another and they took care of each other. They were generous, giving, helpful, caring. When crises happened, like a plague hitting a city, the rich and wealthy citizens would flee to get away from the sickness, leaving the poor and the disadvantaged behind. Do you know who would run in and help those in the city who were left behind? Christians. They would come in, they would bandage the wounded, they would care for the sick, they would feed the hungry, and sometimes they would get sick and die themselves. In more modern times, at the turn of the 20th century, there were Christians that would volunteer in leper colonies to reach the lepers with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In some cases, contracting leprosy themselves, losing fingers and noses and ears. This garnered the reputation for the Christians that was favorable among the people and among the people, and many people turned to Christ because of their selfless examples. Serving others was the hallmark of first century Christians, but it's also the mark of 20th and 21st century Christians too. James Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, founded the organization on three things, soap, soup, and souls. Now that might sound really weird to you until you understand the context. The Salvation Army is a place where homeless find a place to get clean, a meal to eat, and find salvation for their souls. It's not just a store that you can buy thrifty things at. The things you buy at that store go to help the programs for addiction recovery and for homeless shelters to help those in need. Can I tell you that the organization didn't start out that way? Booth initially tried to set up mission houses to preach to the homeless, but with little results. The homeless would come in and leave during his preaching. Hopefully you won't do that today, and you'll say, all right, enough. I've had enough of that today, time to go. And leave during his preaching. 
Someone suggested to him that they offer a meal while he preached so that while he was preaching, the homeless could eat. And when they did that, people started coming and they started hearing the message and they started believing. He understood that the way to bring the gospel to the homeless community was to meet a physical need and then preach the gospel to them. Care for their physical need and bring them to Jesus, the one who can meet their spiritual need for salvation. And to this day, the Salvation Army offers clothing, feeding programs, and drug rehab treatment programs for people who are in need. Let me share another quote with you. Pastor Noel, pastor of Life Church in Ireland, this is the church that uh, Patrick O'Loughlin, one of our missionaries, uh, serves at. And he had this quote to say about their strategy for reaching the community and the world in the part of Europe where it's become the most de-churched and least religious part of the world. You have to remember that the gospel came to Europe and out of Europe, uh, everywhere missionaries were sent, but now we've gotten to a place where Europe is post-Christian. In other words, there are churches there that you can visit them and they're beautiful, but they're empty. There's maybe 20 people and they're lighting candles. People don't go to church anymore. They don't consider themselves part of the, the culture anymore. They don't even pay attention to God. They have nothing to do with them. So Pastor Noel had this strategy when it comes to reaching the community. He says, good deeds bring about good will in the community, which leads to good news, the sharing of the gospel. He understood this, is that as we do good deeds with a purpose in mind, that we will never get a platform in the community unless we reach out and meet a need in the community. Once that happens, the community now understands that we are for good and for the good of people. And it provides for them a platform in which they can share the gospel with others. I'm not talking about the social gospel of the early 20th century where we just do good works for good works sake and the gospel is never shared. It should always be with the purpose that Jesus needs to be made known to a world that won't hear him or receive him. James Booth understood it. Life Church understands it, and we need to understand it too. So who are the least of these, my brothers, that are mentioned? To whom should these good things be done? Well, there's a couple different meanings. One is to do good to our fellow man the less fortunate, those in prison, the hungry and thirsty, those in need and those who need help. There are people who don't know the Lord and they have no one that cares about them, but what if the church cared about them and introduced them to Jesus that way? One is our fellow man. Secondly is our brothers and sisters in Christ, my brethren, Jesus said, people who are part of the family of God. If we go with the interpretation that these are rewards given at the end of the tribulation, then these would be Christians who helped God's people in times of persecution. So the question we must ask ourselves on this snowy Sunday morning is what kind of people should we be? Sheep or goats? What marked the two? What was different about them? We see in in the sheep, the sheep, number one, they served, they cared, and they gave them themselves. They served, they cared, and they gave of themselves. The sheep were Christians who served their fellow man and God's people. They fed the hungry. They gave drink to those who were thirsty. They gave a place 
to live where there were those who had no place to stay. They cared for the sick. They visited those in prison. They served. It was who they were. It was just something that they did naturally. It came an inclination and a desire to serve others and to help others. That's the first thing. Second thing is they didn't think twice about doing it. They saw the need and did it. Christians shouldn't think twice about helping others or helping God's people when a need arises. It should come naturally to you. When God's heart becomes our heart, we're motivated beyond ourselves. Church becomes less of someplace I go to get something out of it, and it becomes more of something where God helps to mobilize you into doing something for him. When was the last time that we did something for him that didn't involve a direct benefit to us? I want you to really think about that for a minute because it can be a humbling thought to think that we do it for him, but do we do it with no inherent benefit to ourselves? Do we profit nothing by it? And if we can say genuinely yes, then we are really doing it for someone else and we're doing it for him. That's how we test our motives. Our heart should be the same as God's heart. We should beat for the same thing he beats for. When we see the need and the Holy Spirit moves on us to act, we should act and do it. Oftentimes we're looking for permission. Oftentimes we're, we compare ourselves to others and say, well, I can't do it as well as that person. Can I tell you that sometimes that person just wish they had one other person to do it with them regardless of how well you do it or not? It's better than them trying to do it alone. The third thing is that they, the sheep didn't do it for recognition, but did it because they loved God and loved people. They didn't want recognition. They didn't do it so they could post it on Instagram or post it on Facebook and say, hey, look, we serve today. Look at me. Or you take a selfie with a homeless guy and say, hey, look what we did today. You've already received your reward in terms of eternity. Because you're, other people are going, great job, isn't that so selfless of you? But the reality is that we do it without looking for any kind of validation, attention, or anyone else's applause, but we do it for the audience of one. We do it for the Lord God, for his honor and his glory, so that people might know the love and compassion of God, not just the condemnation and judgment of God, which is what the church in America is often known for. It's either known for their condemnation and judgment or they're known for their prosperity and the things that they talk about. So we need it to be a people that are known about the heart of God, that care about people and share the love and message of God with them. They didn't do it to be noticed, but you know who noticed it? The Lord. An important truth here is when you serve God's people, you are serving Jesus himself. He says, inasmuch as you did it to the least of my brothers, you, it's like you were doing it unto me. When you serve others in the name of the Lord, it's as if you're serving and honoring him because you did it in his name. So nothing that is done to others in his name goes unnoticed. The Lord notices everything and will take note of it. Now contrast that with the goats. People who didn't love God and love God's people, what were they like? Well, the first thing is one, they didn't serve. They didn't care about the less fortunate around them. They didn't do anything for others. They saw it as someone else's problem to take care of. 
Secondly, they didn't see the needs around them. They went around completely oblivious to it. Or sometimes there are people that complain about the state of the world but do nothing about it. I remember being in the first church I was ever serving at. I was served as a youth pastor under a great pastor. And I remember like, some of the ministries that we would support and get behind were ministries like A Woman's Concern, which was a, a ministry like Clearway Clinic, a crisis pregnancy center, to help uh, young women who were thinking about having an abortion to keep their child. And I think about the supporting of homeless shelters and things that we're doing a gospel work like we do at the Springfield Rescue Mission that we give and we serve at the rescue mission, not just because it's something that's good to do, but we know the gospel is preached. These are ministries that see a problem and do something about it in Jesus' name instead of the church complaining about how bad the world is and offering no solutions for the problem. Church, I have to tell you today, the heart of Jesus is that we would be an answer to the problems of this world, that we'd be his extension to the world so that people would know who Jesus is and there is hope. Third thing about the ghosts is they missed their opportunity. The danger for Christians today is similar to the goat's attitude in this parable. It's easy to think that these are society's problems. It's easy to think that someone will take care of it the government, charities, other agencies, they'll take care of it. But God has given us the responsibility of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. When we do this, it shows the world our God is a God of compassion, one who cares not only for a person's soul, but for a person's needs as well. That's the Jesus that we serve let me tell you something, it's easy to make excuses. Probably when you woke up this morning and you looked out the window, you go, I'll do this next week, right? You know, you probably, some of you might have like looked out the window and go, it's raining out, I really need to go to church. Or in your morning devotions, maybe you, your alarm goes off and if you have an alarm like I do on my iPhone, it's terrifying and it makes it sound like there's a bomb shelter, like a warning going off or the missiles honing in on your location or something, but it wakes you up, and maybe you're really tired that day, and you say, you know, I'll get it tomorrow because, you know, the Lord understands, right? You know, it's like I can do my Bible reading in the morning. There's a reading plan. Pastor Dan said, you know, we have days at the end of the month to catch up. I'll just catch up later. Can I challenge you today that that's a slippery slope because the nature of humanity is to do less. Mankind is like water. Have you ever had water run down a hill? It shapes and moves with whatever the rocks are. It does not push things for the most part. It just kind of moves around it. We, by nature, will do whatever is the least asked of us. You doubt me for a minute? Ask me, okay, here's a question for you. If you have, if you have a meeting at work and it's optional versus mandatory, which one do you go to? You go to the one that's mandatory because my job depends on it. You don't go to the one that's optional because I don't really care, do you? Right? That, in a nutshell, is the nature of people. We don't care about things that don't really benefit us or pertain to us. We don't do things unless it's mandatory. But it's easy to make excuses why we can't do things for God. We say to ourselves, someone else will do it. Or sometimes we see somebody that's so skilled in doing a ministry or area, they say, oh, gosh, they're so, so good at doing it that if I, even if I did it, I would mess it up. 
Meanwhile, that leader is just saying, gosh, I just wish I had one other person to help me do this. And they don't even care. They just wish someone was there to help them. Maybe you've heard these before, and if you've used them, you can repent now. Christians sometimes say, well, that's not my spiritual gift. I do that, but that's not my gifting. Or some will even say, I don't have any gifts that God can use. Really, none? You're that much of a dud that God created, a complete dud for the kingdom of God that you have zero talents and abilities, nothing you can offer. Now, if you think of it only from the perspective of preaching, teaching, and praying, or singing and playing an instrument, then you will say, I have nothing to offer. But if you look at it and say, what can I do with what God has given me? You'll find there's a lot more available to you. Some will say, well, I don't think I'm ready I don't think I'm ready. When will you be ready? Serving God for 30 years, 35 years, 10, 15 years. When will you be ready to do something for Jesus? Because God would like to know. I would like to know. When will you be ready? Well, when I feel like I'm good enough, I'm skilled enough. That, my friend, oh, my head. When was it ever about that? When Jesus saved you, did he say, like, let me clean you up first, and when you're good enough, then you can receive salvation. When you're good enough, you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. When you're good enough, you can be using the gifts of the Spirit. Sorry. Are you hearing me today? If he gave those things to you willingly, quickly, will he not also give you the things that you need to do for him? Is his resources and his storehouses not greater than that? They're only limited by our faith. Here's another one. Well, that's not what God has called me to do. Now, that's an easy one to say. But I usually follow that up with, what has God called you to do? And it's like, uh, I don't know. What has God called us to do? Scripture tells us that God has called us to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before our God, Micah 6.8. James 1.7 says that true religion that the Father accepts is this, to look after widows and orphans in their time of trouble and keep oneself from being stained by the world. If that's not what God has called you to do, then what has he called you to do? Are you doing anything for him? Please understand, listen, I, I can understand if you're doing other things for God, and someone asks you to do something and you can't just add one more thing to your plate. But if you're doing nothing for God and you say, that's not what he's called me to do, I ask you, what has he called you to do and what are you doing for him? Because at the end of the day, we show forth our faith through what we do as a blessing to others and to honor. I, I don't even care if you do nothing for this church. Do something for him because he's worthy of honor. And, and no matter how small it is, Jesus said, if you even give a cup of cold water in my name, You'll be rewarded for that. How simple is that to do? But we make it so complicated. God's in the business of equipping those he called. If he called you to do something, even if you don't have it, God will give you what you need and provide it to you. How many times have God laid on your heart to do something and you had no idea what that was? You're like, well, I guess God's calling me. I feel like a heart for this particular area of ministry. I don't know what to do, but you found out what you needed to do. You asked God for what you needed, and God provided what you needed to be able to accomplish that thing. 
whether it's courage, skill, resources, or help, whatever you need to accomplish what he's asked you to do, God will provide it. Why? Because God always pays for what he orders. He's not like if you go out to lunch with somebody and they go, oh, I got nothing. They order like the biggest meal there and then, then it comes time to pay. And like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a college student. Oh, I'm sorry, I work at Amazon. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm volunteering in ministry. So I can't you. Listen, if you're going out, don't go out and order anything but like water, okay? Don't do that to somebody else because people go, oh, you know, why do they do that? Just like, don't do that. God's not going to stiff you on the bill. What he says to do, he will provide for because he's just bigger than that. He is able to provide. He is able to pour into. He is able to, to give you what you need to accomplish what he's asked you to do. Why? Because what he ordains, he supplies. Sometimes God uses what's right in front of you for his glory. Can I... <laughs> Can I challenge you for a bit? Every single person that God called to do something great, you know what their objection was? I can't. And it was all for the reasons that you would expect. I can't speak like anybody else. I'm not, I'm not the greatest in my clan. I'm not the eldest in my family. I don't have anything that's of particular note. Moses said no to God three times. The third time he really seriously considered killing him. I'm not even kidding you. Go back and read it. You know? Then at the end, he was like, well, what if I send your brother with you? Will you go if I send your brother Aaron? He's like, yeah, I'll go if you send Aaron with me. Sure. Every single person that God called to do great things initially at one point in time said, no, I can't because I don't have to. But you know what the reason is? Is that God's called you to do it. If he thinks he can do it, then you can do it. Not because you're so great, but because, and if anything, you lack so much, God's going to receive the most glory through you because no one would have expected that out of you. Like, people wouldn't have expected anything. How did God do that? Why did God say to Moses in the Mosaic Law that the Jewish people are not allowed to have horses in their army? Really? No horses? At a time where you use chariots to fight people, no horses, but you can have donkeys. What good is a donkey to fight people with? He said, I want you to understand something so that when you have victory over armies that are greater than you, people will say, how did they do it? And they say, it's because the Lord is fighting with them and the Lord is on their side and we have no chance against them. Do you think of God that way? Do you see him as someone that is there to help you and assist you and be with you? When God called Moses, he said, what do you have in your hand? And ironically, Moses had a shepherd's staff in his hand, a rod in his hand. He said, I'll use that. And it was the staff that was in his hand that God used to perform the miracles in Egypt. There's the staff in Moses' hand that he threw down and it became a snake. There's the staff in Moses' hand that he struck the Nile and it became blood. It's what's in your hand. Do you realize, hallelujah, that what you have in your hand is the greatest weapon that God ever endowed you with to smite the kingdom of the enemy. But if you keep think thinking of it as a stick, that's all it will ever be. If you keep thinking of it as though this is just my weak, wasted talent, 
that like I care about people and I'm a good listener, but no one cares and listens to me. Or I'm all I'm good is at serving and putting out a plate of food. Or all I'm good at is putting coffee out. Don't underestimate what God calls you to do and don't get stuck in just that one area. He will increase the measure of your faithfulness with his power at work. To say that you can't do it to use his help. To say that you can't do it is to say that God can't do it. And I don't know about you, I'm not ready to say that God can't. What should we do? Why should we be ready to serve? Why serve? Are you still with me, church? I've been yelling at you a lot. And if you're new, I don't yell this much. Okay, maybe a little bit, all right? Only when I'm excited. Or when God's really kind of working on something for me. I wish I could just coach you into where God wants you to be. I wish I could just move you into that place. I wish I could see you in the place that you're in now and take you and just shove you down the line so you could see what God sees in you and where you are right here. But we will continue to go back to what we can't do because the devil's all about what you can't do. But why serve? Why bother serving? Because the posture of Jesus was service. After the Last Supper, before Jesus went to the cross, in John 13, right before the meal, what does Jesus do? Jesus takes off his outer robe, he wraps a towel around his waist, gets a basin and a towel, and he goes and he washes each of the disciples' feet. That's a man that's about ready to go to the cross in less than 72 hours. And he washes their feet. And they struggle with it, because all they have been doing is arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Even at the Last Supper, read it. They're arguing, and they're saying, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to be part of Jesus' cabinet? Who's going to be part of his, like, his presidential cabinet? Will it be me? Will James and John sit in his right and left hand like the mother asked of them? And Jesus says, I'm going to show you how you be great in the kingdom. And you're great in the kingdom by serving. And Jesus says, no servant is greater than his master. I have washed your feet. You should wash each other's feet. What I am doing, I've set as an example for you. No servant is greater than his master. What I have done, you do. Matthew 20, verses 28, says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served. If anyone deserved to be served and waited on, isn't it the King of kings and Lord of lords? Shouldn't he have had an entourage? Shouldn't he have had people carrying him around on, you know, if you remember like in Roman times or Egyptian times, they had servants that carried around the emperor, carried around the pharaoh. That's the way he should have been treated. He shouldn't have had to wash anyone's feet. He shouldn't have to walk around. He should have had people uh, being able to take him where he wanted to go, whenever he wanted to go. But what did Jesus do? He say, let aside, set aside his glory and his majesty, and he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for any so that others would know who Jesus is, so that others would know who God is. Finally, Mark 10, verses 43 and 44. He called them together and said, it shall not be so among you. Whatever, whoever wants to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first shall be slave of all. In other words, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, if you want to be first, be last. If you want to be great in the kingdom, be a servant of all. Why? Why do you say that? Because they were arguing about the fact that who would be the greatest. And he also did it as an antithesis to the attitude of the Pharisees, which the Pharisees always wanted the first place at the banquet. 
They always want to be recognized in the marketplace. They always want to be praised for the things that they did. He said, if you want to be recognized in my kingdom, make sure that you put yourself last and others first and be a servant of all. And that's not always easy. That's not always something that's our first inclination to do, is it? No. Sometimes we just don't even think about these things. Whoever wants to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven must become like a servant. Are you ready to serve? Then serve God's people as an expression of love to the Lord. Serve those who don't know God so that they might know God through you. If you do it for them, guess who you're also doing it for? You're doing it for him. Use the gifts you have to serve others. Do something tangible for the kingdom. Yes, we can pray. Yes, we can give. Those are all great things. But what have you done for God's people lately? What have you done to help one another? What have you done to meet the need? I say this because as we get through 2024, I want to see us move forward in him. I want to see us do things for the kingdom. That we're not just a church that we go to and we're comfortable in. That we just simply take stock in what we've had and what we've always had but that we would actually make a difference in the world that we live in, that we would make a difference in our community. I want to challenge you this year to serve. Do something tangible. Some of the things we'll be doing this year, serve at the rescue mission. We do that every couple of months. Our team goes out, they make a meal, and they serve at the rescue mission. And so one of our people usually brings a devotional to encourage the men. Can you do something as simple as that? I think you could. And we're going to be restarting our children's ministry Easter weekend. We need volunteers that can help just simply color a page with a toddler or just teach a simple Bible lesson in a book that we're probably going to give you. Can you do that? Yes, Stephanie knows how to do it. Stephanie does a great job. She always does. Believe me, I've been married to her for the last 26 years. I know how good she is. But she needs help too. And we need help if we're going to be able to do that going forward. Give to benevolence. We have a fund set aside to help those in need. When we do that, we're able to help people in our church and outside of our church who fall in hard times. We'll be starting small groups this year. Maybe you want to host a home group at your house. Please see me about that. But whatever you do, do it in service to him so that one day the Lord will say to you, well done, good and faithful, consistent, servant. That's what God is looking for for us today. I know this challenge has not been an easy one. It's not been an easy one to share with you. And if you're new, I'm so sorry. But the word is the word. And if we're here to hear that, there's a reason why you're here to hear that today. What has God asked of us? As we bow our heads and close our eyes, we take a moment to pray. I want you to ask yourself this question. What is God asking you to do? What do you have in your hand? And how can you use it in this church to benefit God's kingdom for his glory and honor? Ask yourself that question. What is God calling you to do? What has he gifted you in? And how does he want you to use it for this church for his glory? And let God speak to you about that. So Father, we pray today Help us. Help us to know who you are. 
Help us to remember, Lord God, that you have saved us not so that we can just sit around and wait for your return. But Lord, even as you said to your disciples, it would be good for the servant who is found by his master doing what he was asked to do. It will be good for that servant that they are dressed and ready for service. Help us to be ready to serve your kingdom, your purposes, your glory. Help us to serve, Lord, what you want us to do to reach those that need to be reached. Let this year be a year in which we grow exponentially, not just in knowledge, but in our faithfulness and our service and our, and our devotion to you. Help us to do things for your kingdom that will make a difference in our community and a difference in our world. God, give us courage. Give us faith. Impart unto those that are here the skills and the abilities and the know-how to do the things you ask them to do and have the faith to be able to carry it out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.